Genesis 2, 15 through 25. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. The word of the Lord. Father, we want to, um, when we ask that, that we want to see you, what, what we're asking for is that you would make yourself clear. Because we can't, we can't get clear about you from our side. We're, we're not very good at it. Lots of things get in the way. Uh, but you're really good at making yourself clear. So would you make yourself clear? And do all the miracles required to get that done. Wherever we're at, wherever, uh, from whatever perspective we're coming from at the moment, from whatever experience we're coming from, will you grant us to see yourself and your goodness and your beauty? And will you grant us in seeing your goodness and your beauty um, to, be, um, to be allured, drawn to a place where we, where we trust you more than we do right now? Um, so please get that done in us. In Jesus' name, amen. Have a seat. <clears throat> All right, we're continuing our series in the uh, book of Genesis, and this is our third and our final uh, look at Genesis chapter 2. And uh, today we are going to talk about work. Um, work is a big deal for all of us. It's especially a big deal, I mean, it's just amplified a little bit if you, um, if you live in New York City. Uh, so one of the things that's interesting about um, the uh, eastern seaboard of the United States is most of the cities on the eastern seaboard, especially in the northern portion of, uh, of, um, of, of the East Coast, most of the cities were founded in one way or another uh, because of some conviction, some uh, often a religious conviction. So Boston was um, founded by Puritans uh, trying to get away from... Uh, those irritating Anglicans in England. You can ask about that story later. Uh, the uh, uh, Baltimore, uh, established by uh, Catholics, um, to some extent for the same reason. Um, Philadelphia for the Quakers. Once again, boy, I hadn't thought about how common that is. I was trying to get away from us. Um, New York is different, though. New York wasn't established primarily as a religious sanctuary. It was established as a place to work. So it was a trading post. Uh, New Amsterdam down uh, at, in, in lower Manhattan uh, was uh, established as a trading post, mainly originally for uh, fur trading up and down the uh, Hudson River. 
And one of the things that that means is that for the last 400 years, that's just been a constant aspect of our city. So um, our city has changed dramatically, changes regularly. There's a constant churn, changes demographically, changes physically. All the buildings get torn down every few years and rebuilt. But the thing that, that has remained the same is that this is a workplace uh, in some way regard before it's anything else. And therefore, if you live in New York City, you really can't breathe without thinking about work. Um, uh, that may not always be a positive thing. It may be that you don't have enough work. It may be that you have too much work. It may be that you hate work. But in any event, the one thing that we can't really do in this city very easily is, is not think about work. Now, why am I saying that? Well, because uh, we're finishing up on Genesis 2. And Genesis 2 teaches us that, in a way, a little bit like New York City, or work is part of the origin story of New York City, so also work is part of the origin story of humanity. Did you know that? And that's true before anything goes wrong in the storyline. So before Genesis chapter 3, we'll, we'll get into that next week. Uh, it's a, just a terrible, terrible tragedy. But before everything goes wrong, work's there and work's good. And so one thing that means, Emmanuel, is uh, that in a deep way, you can't really understand God's design for your life without uh, connecting it in with God's call for you to, to work. And God designed us not just to work, but designed us to engage work with a level of significance um, that, that oftentimes we overlook. So for a lot of Christians, we imagine, and we don't really think about this explicitly very often, but we imagine a firewall between our religious life, which inha we inhabits the private areas of our life, and our work life, which inhabits the public area of our life. And for a lot of Christians, we never really thought about how the spiritual life impacts the workplace or how the workplace uh, impacts the spiritual life. There's just like a, an implied firewall there. And a lot of people who are not Christians, who are irreligious, uh, one of the reasons that they don't really think uh, Christianity has any relevance is because, it, because they kind of assume a similar firewall, and they just don't see that uh, Christianity or the teachings of Jesus or whatever has anything to do with the area of their life where they spend the vast majority of their time, which is in their, their work. Now, I'm saying this because Genesis 2 wants to take that firewall and tear it down. Let me show you what I mean. Take a look at the reading. Uh, look at the second reading. This is on page 9. Uh, and look at verse 15. It says this, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. Now, the words work and keep, basically the whole sermon's an elaboration of those two words. Um, let me explain what I mean. Remember, we've said this a bunch of times, Genesis was written uh, at sometime after Israel... Uh, was liberated from enslavement in Egypt. Remember the story of the Red Sea, the story of the Passover. They were enslaved in Egypt. They, uh, God liberates them. And then at some point after that is when Genesis uh, is composed. And so Genesis as a book is designed to take a group of formerly enslaved people and reshape them into a united people who experience an unprecedented kind of relationship with God. Now, in order to get that done, Genesis, one of the things that Genesis has to do is Genesis has to revolutionize what it is that comes into the mind of Israel, the people of God, when they think about work. 
So what is it that came to Israel's mind when they thought about work? Well, at least two things came into their mind when they thought about work, and this reading wants to give a third. So what are the two things? Well, the word translated work in verse 15, if you trace how it's used in the rest of Genesis and especially in Exodus and so forth, um, one, th this word is often used to describe Israel's enslavement in Egypt. And when Israel was enslaved in Egypt, their work was totalizing, totalizing. What do I mean by totalizing? It means that their work filled the totality of their lives. So it filled up all their time. They worked every single day and they couldn't take a day off. Never, never took a Sabbath. But not only did work fill up their time, it filled up their identity. Because when you're enslaved, uh, it's not just that you do work, it's that you become work. Oh, you, uh, work fills up all who you are. You just are valued exclusively for your work. And so work was totalizing. Uh, it was kind of totalitarian in their lives. It filled up and ruled their time, totally. It filled up and ruled their identity, totally. And, and therefore, it was totally oppressive. Um, however, this word work, if you trace how it's used in the rest of Genesis and in Exodus and so forth, sometimes it describes a dynamic that's less totalizing and more transactional. What does that mean? Well, after Israel is liberated from Egypt, um, this word work sometimes is used to describe Israel serving idols. Israel falling into paganism. So remember, we've said this a bunch of times, paganism was just part of the air that they breathed. It was the dominant cultural framework of the day. And what you could do is uh, you could, in a sense, work for one of these pagan divinities. Uh, so you might serve, which is the same, same word in this context, uh, you might serve Baal or Marduk or Amun-Re or whatever your favorite pagan divinity of the day is. But when you served them or you worked for them, you did, it wasn't just uh, merely religious worship like we think of it. It was, you worked for them. Meaning, you invested in them. Uh, you, 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 might, you bring them sacrifices. You bring them a goat or whatever. You feed them. You bring them grain. But the thing is, you do all these things. You bring your goat, your grain, whatever it is. You're always looking for a return on investment. You're always looking for the ROI. You're, you, you bring in a goat and you expect a return, and the different gods specialize in different kinds of returns. So you might expect fertility uh, because you brought the goat. You might expect uh, prosperity. You might expect good luck, whatever. But you're all, it's a transaction. You bring your work, you get the goods that you're looking for. Or at least that's how you're supposed to work. And Israel went in for this approach to work frequently. It's all through the story. They keep on uh, jettisoning the God who liberated them, and instead they go to work for these other divinities. And it's a little less totalizing than enslavement because uh, they choose it. There's some agency. But it's transactional. Because no one loves Marduk or Baal or Amun-Re, or Zeus, or whoever it is. There's no loving relationship in these things. You just want what it is the divinity claims to deliver. It's just cold business. 
It's all about the return on investment. It's a transaction, and that's all. Now, that's at least part of what comes to Israel's mind when they think about work at this time. And I think that there are answerable dynamics in our, in our experience today. So many people, see if you can identify with this, many people relate to work in a, in a totalizing way. Uh, other people, maybe sometimes the same people in different seasons of their life, relate to work in a very transactional way. So if I relate to work in a totalizing way, one of the things that that'll mean is that it just fills up my identity and there's very little of me afterwards. So um, I used to work at a bank. Um, well, one of, the, one of my bosses, I'll call him Joe, not Joe, um, one of the greatest workers I've ever met in my life. I mean, this man was amazing. So he, anytime the bank had a problem, they'd give it to Joe, and then Joe would take the problem and turn it into a great success. It, it was amazing. It was amazing to watch the guy work. And one day, we were having a pretty honest conversation, um, uh, and we both agreed uh, that he was like a Maserati on the open road. I don't know. I don't know anything about cars. But I think those are quite good, aren't they? Anyways, maybe a Bugatti. I don't know. Um, and, but but, but the, the, the image was, uh, we both agreed that, I mean, he was going like 120 miles per hour, but there was no destination. Just the whole of who he is was gathered up in that car, in that, in that activity. It was totalizing. Wonderfully, that changed eventually. Now, if work is totalizing, you might, it might express itself in different ways. You might express that um, by overworking, but, you know, working I don't know, 80 hours a week and you can't take a Sabbath. But then there might be other times where you express that underworking. You, you might resent work. You, like Israel resented Pharaoh, you might, you might oscillate between working like crazy and then you just, I don't want anything to do with it. <clears throat> but the, the, the sign is that ultimately you can't really escape it because it's just filling up who you are. You don't know who you are beyond it. But then at other times, uh, our work isn't so much totalizing. Sometimes work in the city becomes transactional. And <clears throat> this is when uh, work is the thing you gotta do in order to get the next thing you really want. Where work doesn't really have any intrinsic meaning in your life particularly, but it's just a, it's just a stepping stone to something else. So the most obvious thing is, you know, you work to get money. There's nothing wrong with that. Uh, but if money is the only thing that I seek in work, then work is transactional. You're not thinking, you're not doing work for anything in itself, you're just, you're just pulling the lever, trying to get the thing that you want, which might be money. But it might not be money. Uh, I might work my guts out uh, because I desperately need the dopamine rush of getting promoted. What I really want is, I don't know, the approval, the, um, the pat on the back uh, from succeeding. But my work has become transactional. I'm just aiming for that. Or I might work my guts out because, uh, I don't know, I want the bragging rights of being able to say, hey, I made it in New York City. Or I might work my guts out uh, because I desperately have to achieve the security that maybe I never had as a kid. Whatever it might be. Work, the meaning isn't in the work. The meaning is exclusively in the thing I'm trying to get through the work. Now, <clears throat> I, I say to, sometimes work is totalizing, sometimes work is uh, transactional. It's obviously more complex than that, right? And most of us don't live in the extremes. Most of us live somewhere in the middle, and we're a complex web of 
sometimes both of those things. But go back to Genesis 2, because Genesis 2 wants to supplant both visions with a new vision. Work in Genesis chapter 2 is not totalizing like enslavement, and it's not transactional like paganism. What it is, is it's an expression of freedom. It's a free response to the loving work of God. Now, I use the word love. The word love doesn't show up in the reading. Um, but you can see God's love in the way God works, which, by the way, is true of a great deal. But I just leave that aside. Think about Genesis 1 and 2. Genesis 1 and 2 is full of work, right? But overwhelmingly, the work that is going on in Genesis 1 and 2, it's God's work. And that was really weird because pagan divinities, they don't work. That's like the point. They make humans so that the humans can go off and do their bidding. The work is beneath them. But work is not beneath the God of the Bible. All through Genesis chapters 1 and 2, God works. And he works not because he needs anything. He's not like, um, <clears throat> uh, to, to quote the, the great theologian um, Bono from U2, uh, the God I serve isn't short of cash. He doesn't, he doesn't work because he needs anything. And it's precisely because he doesn't need anything that his work is just pure generosity. Now, when Israel read this, they had already experienced God's work because it was God's work that had reached down and met them in the midst of their enslavement and liberated them, liberated them and brought them out of Egypt and into freedom. They had experienced that their freedom was the benefit of a God who went to work for them and they barely lifted a finger. But now as they read Genesis 2, they discover that that experience was an echo of an ancient reality. When they read this, they get to discover that humanity from the very beginning was created by a God who had gone to work even before the creation of humanity in order to make sure that everything was ready for humanity so that when humanity opened its eyes, humanity was able to look into the eyes of a God who had been hard at work loving them. And what that calls forth is a whole new model for work because it means that our human work is meant to be the response of love to God in gratitude for God's loving work for us. God shows his love to us through his generous work for us. And then humanity is meant to respond by showing our love to God by working in response. But it, there's a freeness there. And in this, it's not totalizing because our identity is not found in the work. Our identity is found in a loving relationship with God. And it's not transactional because our work actually bears significance. It has meaning in itself as an expression of love to God. So that firewall between work on the one hand and the spiritual life on the other hand, Genesis 2 is trying to tear that down. And Genesis 2 wants to tear that down by transforming all the work of the Christian life into worship. Worship? Yes. Now, I don't mean worship in the sense of uh, singing and Sundays and what we're doing right here. I'm not saying that you need to make sure you always have a Christian playlist going at work, because that would be weird. I mean, I mean, if, you're, I mean if you want to, whatever. But um, 
But what it means is that God wants you to be free, free from a totalizing experience of work, but free, to, free from just thinking of work as a mere transaction. God wants your work to be a free expression of love and gratitude to God. Now, that's lovely in the, in the abstract, but what does it look like? Well, look back at verse 15. Uh, verse 15 says that Adam was to work and keep the garden. Uh, I'm going to use different words. Uh, uh, humanity is supposed to cultivate and preserve. So first, our work should cultivate. Uh, one, of the, one of the interesting things about Genesis is that on the one hand, God finishes all the work, right? He creates everything. But on the other hand, it's kind of like God leaves some things undone as if to make room for human contribution. So for instance, in Genesis chapter 1, God creates things and then he names things. Do you remember that? But then in Genesis chapter 2, um, God leaves the animals unnamed. He wants humanity to name the animals. A and it's kind of like when, when uh, God, uh, in verse 19, do you see that? When, when God says, brings all the animals to Adam and says, name them, it, it's almost like God is, is waiting to see what it is that the human is going to name all of these animals. It's a curious thing. It's, it's as if God created the world, but then purposefully left some space so that humanity could make genuine contributions. And that connects with what we learned about what it means to be human in Genesis chapter 1. Remember, um, God created humanity in his own image, which means God created humanity to reflect him. God created humanity to uh, represent him in the midst of this world. And part of God's plan is that as humans will imitate God by creatively developing the world by creatively cultivating the world around us, by creatively innovating in the midst of this world so that uh, the potential of this world is brought forth and flourishes and life flourishes. Examples. So uh, uh, Adam, in, in, Adam and Eve here are, are not just supposed to sit back and you know relax and, and just be at leisure all the time and reach up and grab a fruit off the nearest tree and, and, and munch on it. They're meant to be farmers. Why? A farmer uh, uh, modifies the landscape so that more food can, bring can, can flourish and so that more life can flourish. There's a cultivation. Or uh, I... I all humans should be able to enjoy natural beauty, the natural beauty of this world. But God has called us not only to enjoy the natural beauty of this world, but also to be artists, to, to uh, innovate new beauty so that it can be enjoyed. That's creative cultivation. Uh, we're not just supposed to be consumers. But God wants us to be uh, entrepreneurs and inventors and manufacturers where we uh, create out of the resources of this world uh, new things, new products that help people and encourage life within this world and delight. It's creative cultivation. Uh, we're not merely called to uh, live under authority 
of the authority of government. We are called to do that, but we're also called to contribute to the life of government and the state. We're called to be uh, citizens and voters and lawmakers who promote policies that contribute to justice and mercy in the midst of this world. All of this is creative cultivation. And one of, that thing, one of the things that that means for you and me is this. We, you need to remember that God made you and that he did a good job. In, by the way, pause. Uh, when we don't believe that God did a good job in making us, in making you, it's an insult to God's artistic creativity and art and skill. God made you well. And part of that is he gave you abilities, capabilities, talents, skills, gifts. And he wants you to use those in such a way that, that you're contributing to the flourishing of the world around you. We're to cultivate, but we're also to preserve. Uh, you take that from verse 15. Adam is meant to keep the garden. What does that mean? Well, part of it means is uh, that he's supposed to maintain the garden according to God's vision. And he's supposed to protect the garden according to God's vision. And he's supposed to preserve the garden in such a manner that it continues to flourish in the way that God wants. So it requires him to know something of God, know something of God's intention, and then influence the world in such a way that it comes into line with that. Now, here's part of the reason that this is really important. Human beings are prodigiously powerful, especially when we work together. And that can lead to really, really great things. And it can lead to really, really abysmal, horrible things. I mean, and you can look, it doesn't, you have to, don't have to look very far to see the bad things, right? Um, you, can, you can look at it at the macro scale, you can think about the environmental crisis, you can think about wars, you can think about um, horrific, the way we can use technology to just to, to, to kill um, indiscriminately. So we can think about it on a on a big level, but we also have remarkable power at a more local level in the way we work in our workplace, in the way that we lead an organization, in the way that we uh, interact on our blocks and in our neighborhoods. We can interact in a way that causes flourishing and we can interact in such a way that it causes terrible, terrible suffering. And therefore, part of the point here is that God gives us the gift of work and that gift bears enormous power, and therefore it needs to be used well. We need to use uh, our, the, the abilities and the influence that we have in order to intentionally preserve the world, keep it as much as we can uh, in line with God's intention. Example. Um, there's an organization called Arosha International. It's a Christian um, environmental advocacy group. And um, they do this in a very, very literal way. So, for instance, in uh, British Columbia, they were able to acquire this land that had been terribly, terribly damaged by a variety of things. And over the years, what they did is they studied the land. And they studied theology, and they're trying to connect who is God, who it, what is this land, what's it for, and what would flourishing look like here? And they went to work, keeping it, preserving it, guarding it, repairing it. And some years into it, uh, they noticed a fish in the stream that they'd never seen before. And they realized it was an extinct fish, except it wasn't extinct. They had thought it was locally extinct, but here it is, the Salish suckerfish. 
you might want to know, um, is doing great. And so what, it's the work of keeping and preserving. I, I, I could tell you, I, I could take you to a place in, in London, the middle of London, there used to be a, a, a really awful landfill that Arosha went in and now it's a beautiful wetland in the middle of London. What this means is that we learn from God, we learn God's vision for the world, and then the Lord wants us to uh, put into practice, to use our influence in the midst of our cities, in the midst of our places of work, in the midst of uh, our neighborhoods, even in our families, so that through our influence, the world, uh, uh, we're encouraging the world to reflect God's vision for it. Now, here's the deal. The only way we can preserve well and cultivate well is if we're deeply animated by God's work. Our eyes have to be on God and who he is and what he's done in order for us to have any possibility of doing this. Because without God, we're either going to end up, work is going to be totalizing or work is going to be transactional. And if your work is totalizing or transactional, then eventually uh, you, you won't be able to have a significant, a helpful influence in the long term. You'll, you'll, you'll you'll, you won't have the distance to critique when you need to critique your industry. You may, not you may not care enough to do anything about it. You may not care about the right things. And so, but if we find that God's work is the deep work that really fulfills us, then we'll experience freedom, freedom to cultivate, freedom to, pre, uh, to preserve, and vision, wisdom to know the, how to do it well. And so the question is, to what extent is God's work the dominant work in your life? Um, on the night that Jesus died, he prayed. You can read about it in John chapter 17. He prayed. And when he prayed, he echoed verse 15. Did you know that? He says, Father, he, I mean, he knows he's going to die. He says, he says, Father, I've accomplished your work. And not only does he mention his work and accomplishing it, he also mentions the ministry of preser preservation and keeping. He says, Father, I've kept those whom you've given me. Now you keep them too, says Jesus as he goes to the cross. Why does that matter? Do you remember what we said it, when God created, he left room for human contribution. But the trouble is, all of us, have messed up the human contribution in some pretty abysmal ways. And you can just look at the brokenness of this world and you'll know that that's true. Look at the brokenness of your own soul and you'll know that's true more personally. We need a human who can cultivate and preserve this world rightly. And that's exactly what Jesus did. When Jesus went to the cross through his death and his resurrection, and right now in the midst of reigning over all as king of the whole universe, Jesus Christ preserves us from everything that can really destroy us from the inside out for forever. But not only does he preserve us, he cultivates us. Right now, if you belong to Jesus Christ, he's cultivating you. He's growing you up. He's challenging you and encouraging you and filling you with grace so that you can become more like him over the course of your life. You, if you belong to Jesus, you are being preserved and you are being cultivated. How vivid is that for you? And if you're not a Christian, consider what it would be like if the God of the universe, if you could be confident, sure, that the God of the universe was both preserving you from everything that can destroy you forever and cultivating you moment by moment and breath by breath with his kindness and mercy and grace. Wouldn't that be great? And wouldn't it change your life?
so that we could go into the, into the midst of this city, which work is part of its origin story, but it's so often it's totalizing, so often it's transactional. But we are meant to go out as ambassadors of a different kind of work, ambassadors of the work of a God who gave all that he is for our preservation and our cultivation, so that then we can go out and cultivate the city and preserve for the glory of Jesus Christ. Amen. Hello, everyone. My name is Jim Saladin. I'm the rector here at Emmanuel Anglican Church. Uh, our church exists to see and describe and reflect the beauty of Jesus Christ for the flourishing of our city. And I hope this podcast encouraged you in that way towards Christ. If you're here in New York City, we'd love to see you. Please join us on Sundays at 11 a.m. Generosity drives everything we do at Emmanuel. And if you'd like to contribute, please visit www.emmanuelanglicannyc.com slash give.